Good afternoon to our listeners. I'm Sivan Pliskov, Commercial Real Estate Director at Carbon Intelligence. And it is my pleasure to welcome you today to our podcast, Net Zero, Why Now? The race to zero is happening, whether organizations want to be in it or not. Regulation, the rising cost of carbon and market demand will mean that real estate will no longer have a choice over whether or not to decarbonize in the future. In this podcast, the panel will discuss the challenges that we have in moving to a net zero environment when 70 to 80% of buildings that will be in use in 2050 have already been built today. The panel will reflect on the recently published Net Zero Why Now paper from Carbon Intelligence and the increasing momentum from investors on putting pressure on asset owners to address this issue. I'd like to extend a warm welcome to our esteemed panelists today, representing the various stakeholders of the real estate sector. David Delaney, Group Chief Executive, IPSX. Hi, welcome everybody. Alex Green, Assistant Director, Development and Sustainability for the British Property Federation. Hello. Paul Garris, Sustainability Program Manager for British Land. Hey, everyone. And Oliver Light, Commercial Director of Real Estate, Carbon Intelligence. Hello, everyone. Thank you all for joining us in this exciting discussion. I'd like to start with yourself, David. How will net zero affect investment in real estate? Net zero, I think, is going to be a game changer for investment in real estate. I say that because certainly for Unless you're buying specific physical buildings, you know you're generally investing in, 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 through collective um, collective methods. Whether it's buying a, a funded investor in real estate or the famous open-ended funds, or even if you're in in, in, a, in a private fund with Blackstone or organisations like that. But generally, you're investing in a collective group that buys a range of buildings. Now, as you just said, one of the critical things going forward is the fact that most of the buildings that are going to need to be carbon neutral by 2050 have already been built. And so as a result of that, it's going to be critical on a building-by-building building basis that investors can understand what their carbon footprint looks like and how the managers of those buildings are going to be developing the carbon footprint to ensure that it achieves net zero by 2050, or indeed earlier if the asset owner has stated they want to achieve it earlier, which many organizations and Trade, trade associations have. From that point of view, the current way of investing where you invest in, in, a, a, in a group of collective assets isn't going to help you to under, understand the risks that you run in owning a, a, a building that you may find is not going to be able to achieve uh, carbon neutrality by 2050 and therefore could risk being you know, a stranded asset. From that point of view, investors are going to be very, very focused on a building-by-building building basis what the footprint is likely to be, and therefore transparency is going to be critical. Historically, investors have really looked at a portfolio effect on, on investing in buildings as opposed to a single asset. And so that is, I think, the key change that this net zero is going to drive with investors. They're going to have to focus on a building-by-building building transparent basis and not the a, a collective portfolio basis that they've always used really previously to invest in, in particularly commercial real estate. Thank you for that. Ollie, following the route of impact, how do you see uh, well net zero impact valuations? 
Yeah, so yeah, following on from David's points around stranded assets, I've had a, a few conversations with different valuations teams. I think short term, what they're starting to see is one, the impact on on reduced energy costs. There's been more evidence around attractiveness to certain occupiers and rental premiums, and also reduced life cycle and maintenance costs. And given the the fast um, moving nature around legislation, we're starting to see some of the big institutional investors think about doing due diligence to the point of acquisition and just making sure that they limit the risk of taking on a, a brown asset in the future. We're also seeing more consensus around the need to invest into deep retrofit projects across specific assets and draw up long-term OPEX and CAPEX plans so that they can help to deal with the future valuation risks in the future and, and be able to demonstrate to the market that the asset is aligned to climate science. And I think what you'll see long term are those assets that aren't able to keep up will face higher discount rates. They'll, they'll be hit by the need to actually invest in the future to deal with obsolescence risks and compliance risks. And there'll be a real um, brown penalty associated with that and, and poor performance. Thank you for that. We turn to another important stakeholder in our equation. Paul, how do you see the role of occupiers in an assets net zero journey? Thanks, it's a great question. I think if we start at the big picture, what we see from emerging definitions of net zero and I would note the example of the UK Green Building Council's energy performance targets for offices. What we see is that net zero is not just about the transition to renewable power. It is about delivering a society which is highly efficient in its use of energy, and that this has to include the built environment in its scope. If we look at the example of the UK GBC's targets, we see a set of energy performance targets in 2050 that are quite stretching, and the occupier will play a central role in our ability to hit stretching targets like this. It'll have to be a, a close collaboration between the landlord and the occupier. And we find that quite exciting. I think we've seen from some of our work on the ground at our region's place campus, we've seen that we can reduce operational embodied emissions, particularly in fit out through the use of things such as the remanufacture of furniture and office equipments. Uh, this can this can deliver a significant reduction in operational embodied emissions of a fit-out. Likewise, on the operational side, we are quite excited with some of our current work, which is undertaking a series of net zero audits across our existing portfolio, which is going to help us map our asset-specific pathways to net zero for a given building. But I'd emphasize for these activities, a central role in hitting these targets is finding the best routes to collaborate with like-minded occupiers to really drive reductions in emissions. So the occupier's role is quite central, I believe. Alex, did you want to add something to that? Yeah, thank you. So I think for a time now, a lot of the, in particular, regulation has been focused on building owners. Um, and therefore, the onus has been on building owners and landlords to, I guess, drive changes in the building stock. Um, I think, yeah, in increasingly over time, there's probably been a uh, sort of reputational and a, a driver from occupants maybe to uh, to push, um, especially in the non-domestic sectors, their uh, their landlords, their building owners to to, to uh, improve buildings. But ultimately, there's not been any sort of regulatory clout to that. 
we're starting to see that I think that relationship between landlord and occupier is becoming really crucial to, uh, I guess, addressing the issues of, of net zero and, and climate change in general. And I think not only will we see occupants and, and building owners work closer together to, to manage the risks and, and manage that tr transition, but we'll also see within regulation, there'll be a little bit more of an onus, not only on building owner, but on occupier to, to sort of level that playing field and, and also make it so that the building owner has a bit more, uh, a, a few more levers to pull when they're, when they're uh, looking to, to improve their buildings for, for energy performance. Let's stay with you. I mean, there's a picture around regulation that is both guided yet unclear. How will regulation drive greater transparency around net zero? So I think for for a time now, um, there's there's you know there's been a lot of of work done to to you know again build in regulations that that uh, incentivize the the industry to act, but. You can't really do that effectively until you have transparency of data and know what it, what it is exactly you're dealing with. Um, and we're seeing now a shift to try and create some of that transparency through regulation. Um, one important element of this, which we're going to see relatively soon, is the government uh, mandating that all UK registered companies must disclose financial-based climate impacts. Um, the intention there being uh, increasing the sort of pressures on the market um, to to bring poor performing um, businesses and poor performing assets up to uh, up to scratch. You know, if if there's a transparency of how the building stock is is operating and its and its energy performance and um, the impacts, whether scope one, two, or three that your business is having, um, then naturally the, the the sort of transition of that is to um, a situation where you can address those. Um, and you're you're incentivized to address those. Um, I think investors and, and consumers will become more discerning, um, and businesses will have to to react accordingly. And that's that's really going to be a driver alongside sort of reputational um, uh, considerations. But then there's also a raft of other I think regulatory instruments that are coming down the line, which I think are going to incorporate this idea of transparency. Um, we're already seeing that when when looking to develop regulations around minimum, minimum energy efficiency standards and EPCs, there's now a question around what the the um, obligation can be on the tenant or occupant, not just the um, landlord, as we've mentioned previously, um, and then. In, in particular, a very uh, new and, um, and an exciting set of regulations which are going to be looking at performance-based ratings rather than the sort of historical theoretical basis of, of EPCs. Um, and one of the key considerations there really is, is whether or not you know, there's going to be an element of building owners needing to report to this rating system based on performance and energy use in a building, but also what role the occupant is going to play in that. Um, and if we can get to a situation where a vast swathe of the non-domestic building stock is reporting on their actual energy use annually, um, that transparency can only lead to, to, to really positive outcomes. Thank you for that. That's been most interesting. And uh, I would like to wrap up today's discussion with your views, all our panelists. What are the immediate next steps to net zero for the built environment's major stakeholders, be it regulators, investors, occupiers? David, would you like to begin? One of the first steps here is, is for particularly the, the investors and then the asset owners to 
all recognise their requirements to strive towards net zero. You know, one of the, one of the things that I would say when I talk to real estate owners is is that there's a real bifurcation between some owners that are all over net zero. You know, British Land's a good example of that, for uh, for example. Um, but but some asset owners and, and possibly the, the the smaller ones really have only started to get involved in thinking about this really middle of last year, and so that there's there needs to be a, a, the first foot that has to drop is they they need to really start to focus on this as a as a fundamental issue, you know they're going to find very very quickly I think, and we've seen that the pace of movement I think since COVID that. Assets will become incredibly unattractive to uh, occupiers very, very quickly. You know, there, there was something I was reading in, uh, last week that was saying that of the uh, one of the one of the big agents was observing that the only people, uh, the only assets that are being reviewed now and, and are viewed for potential tenancy are the sort of top-rated A-grade assets, and nobody and no one else is really looking at lower-quality assets. Why is that? Because of the fact that, you know, COVID has driven potential occupiers to really want to have the best quality assets. And the observation was then made that actually 80% of the buildings in London, commercial real estate in, in London, you know, from an office point of view, was, was built more than 20 years ago. So actually, the point is there aren't that many A-grade offices, and yet they're, they're the only ones that are being sought out by tenants at the moment. And I think that's you know, from the COVID point of view and then from the carbon point of view, is only going to continue. And as a result of that, asset owners that aren't absolutely focused on this and absolutely focused on making sure that they're upgrading their their uh, real estate to really appeal to tenants are going to mean that they're very, very quickly going to, going to find that either they're going to be getting much, much lower rents or alternatively that they're, that they're going to quickly get into a stage where they can't rent their buildings at all. And so for me, that's the, that's the critical thing, that the, a, a realisation, this, this move I think will happen very, very quickly, exacerbated by COVID, and that unless owners really embrace fully the, uh, the, the implications that they have for tenants, that, that, that they're going to really, um, that, that they're going to suddenly uh, be surprised that, that uh, they can't rent their buildings. So that I think is the first foot to drop for me from, a, from an asset owner point of view as a result of this. Ollie, what are your views on immediate next steps? Yeah, so going through, going, well, sorry, going from regulators to investors to occupiers, firstly on regulators, we've been really surprised at just how much regulation has been coming on the track and the speed at which targets have been moved forward. And I think that's really exciting for this space. And aspects that Alex spoke about regarding energy ratings, that's going to be hugely beneficial. And there's almost an argument around um, other frameworks like SFDR, whether or not it's crossing a line and becoming too intrusive and are some some um, getting away with it. But as, as we drill more into the regulation and, and start to understand what it means, we can take best practice from abroad. We all, we, we've heard about the neighbours rating in Australia, which is linked to improved asset value, and we're, we're incorporating that in. So I think regulation is definitely on the right track. In terms of occupiers, 
Now, just adding a, um, a slightly different perspective from what's been discussed so far, we're actually working with corporate occupiers to help them set credible net zero pathways. So previously, there's been a misconception that it's just about buying green energy and um, moving into a sustainable building. That's not true. There's a lot more that needs to happen. And it's causing our occupier clients to say, whoa, when's our next um, lease extension discussion, lease negotiation, what do we want? Where, which building do we actually want to be in? And I think they're going to become a lot more savvy in what they want in buildings, which is going to drive the, the real estate market forward. And then finally, from an investor perspective, there's a lot more requirement around transparency of data, as we've discussed. Actually understanding how a building's performing is, is a must. Actually understanding other key facts around um, when, are, when are they going to invest into retrofitting the assets? What are they currently doing now? What does that mean for, for um, the occupiers within the building? Those questions becoming a lot more pertinent. So I, I'm really enthusiastic. I think, I think we're on the right track and um, I, I hope that there'll be more of this um, to come. Paul? Would you take the occupier's point of view? What are the immediate next steps uh, from their aspect? Well, I think from both the landlord and the occupier's point of view, we have a context where a number of occupiers have science-based targets and net zero commitments. A number of landlords have science-based targets and net zero commitments. These often overlap across the same set of buildings. And so I think certainly for some of us in the market, the next step is to find the best ways to work together. We share the commitment to driving down these emissions. What are the swiftest and most effective ways to collaborate and actually kind of drive down shared reductions? Alex, I'm sure you'd like to uh, take the hand with uh, regulators. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's all about long-term certainty at this point. Um, you know, Oli mentioned there's been uh, an exceptional amount of, of policy development and regulations coming forward in, in recent years, and that trend seems to continue. But um, I think what the industry you know, thrives on really is a sort of long-term view. Development cycles are not swift. Um, uh, refurbishment cycles are not particularly swift. Leases, in some instances, can be very long. So. It's just understanding long term for the industry, giving that certainty of what will be required of it over time. I use the analogy of you know the automotive industry. They have quite a clear deadline now for when they'll not be able to sell petrol-driven cars. Um, so I think we need something similar in in you know a roadmap to to let the industry know that you know I think we know there is a, a certain direction of travel, but with these incremental steps in regulation, um, yes, people are going to work towards them, but can they take a more sort of holistic view and look longer term and think why am I investing in this thing rather than um, as I said, sort of incremental updates and improvements. And David. How can a public market like IPSX help real estate investors on the reporting of net zero targets for real assets? That's a, that's a great question, Sylvan. Um, the key thing about IPSX is that IPSX is focused on single asset commercial real estate. And that's the key to helping investors understand the carbon uh, net zero issues with their buildings. Because IPSX is focused on single assets. You'll therefore, an investor will therefore see reports focused solely on that asset, on valuations, but also on the approach to dealing with, with net zero carbon and the progress they're making towards net zero. 
And so that transparency that investors will have to be able to see the progress that the management company is making towards net zero will, will really allow investors to understand the risks of their investments. And that's in comparison to investing in a portfolio of real estate assets where you won't be able to see the, the transparency asset by asset and understand the risks asset by asset that you will have as an investor on that net zero journey. That's the critical difference that IPSX will, will provide and that's the critical difference that investors will benefit from and enjoy in understanding the risk on their investment from a net zero point of view. Many thanks to our expert panel and to our listeners for joining us today. David. Goodbye. Oli Light. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Really interested to see where IPSX goes around helping on ESG transparency. Paul. Thanks, this was fun. And Alex. Thank you, real, real pleasure to be involved. Please tune in for future episodes and join us on our next webinar with Carbon Intelligence on July 7th, exploring the importance of net zero and asset valuations. Goodbye.